0: You're listening to the best of the broadcast.
1: to the left
0: me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. I'm broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we put together some of our favorite interviews for you. A best of the broadcast. On today's show, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance talks with Brad about her lawsuit calling for the results of Georgia's lieutenant governor's race to be tossed entirely. And after that, Los Angeles Times columnist Michael Hiltzik debunks the Trump administration's false claims about California's water. So sit back and enjoy this best of the Bradcast.
2: The irreconcilably illegitimate race for governor in the great state of Georgia That may be over with Republican Secretary of State and Voter Suppression Champion of the Year Brian Kemp overseeing his own tight race for governor against Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who would have been the nation's first African-American female governor had she been able to overcome Kemp's massive voter suppression efforts before the election and during the counting, frankly such as more than a million uh, voters were purged from the voting rolls in recent years. There were rejected absentee and provisional ballots for alleged signature mismatches in the state and other related techniques used to shave off votes, allowing Brian Kemp to avoid a runoff contest with Abrams by just 22 one hundredths of a percent or 0.22 percent. It also doesn't hurt that all the votes cast at the polling place on Election Day were cast on oft-failed, easily hackable, almost 20-year-old, 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting machines made by the now-defunct Diebold Election Systems, Inc. That only skims the surface of why we have long argued now that a win by Kemp at this point in the governor's race cannot possibly be seen as legitimate. To that end, Stacey Abrams has formed a new group called Fair Fight Georgia. They have filed a federal voter suppression lawsuit against Brian Kemp in the state of Georgia over what they allege to be gross mismanagement of the election, asking for paper ballots. From here on out in Georgia's elections, well, there's an idea. In the meantime, a a lawsuit was filed over the holiday weekend in Georgia in the lieutenant governor's race between Democratic candidate Sarah Riggs Amico and Republican Jeff Duncan, uh, who has now been certified as the winner by about three and a half points in that race. But that lawsuit was not filed by the Democratic candidate in the lieutenant governor's race. It was filed by the Coalition for Good Governance, the nonpartisan nonprofit group that has filed several lawsuits over the past several months in the Peach State, challenging their use of 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems prior to the election, which the judge in the federal case had found to be completely unreliable for use in any election before then allowing them to be used anyway instead of paper ballots just before the November 6th midterms, finding that a switch to the same paper ballots used for absentee voting but at the polling place would just cause too much chaos at the polls with such short notice. But their newest suit in Georgia calls for the results of the lieutenant governor's race to be tossed entirely. Really? Jordan Wilkie over at Who, What, Why reported a complaint filed late on Friday contesting the outcome of the lieutenant governor's race could provide a rare glimpse into the state's election infrastructure and an opportunity to audit its non-transparent voting machines. Is that even possible? Joining us now to explain what is possible and what isn't is the Coalition for Good Governance's executive director, longtime election integrity champion and friend of both Bradblog.com and the Bradcast, Marilyn Marks, who, like me, is still fighting for every vote and every voter. From the November 6, 2018 midterm elections, Marilyn, welcome back to the Bradcast. I hope you have been able to get a little bit of rest since Election Day out there.
1: Ha ha ha, Brad. Not a chance yet. <laughs> not a, it won't be for a while. Um, as you know, we, we've we spent the last several days uh, following this newest lawsuit. Yep. Very last minute, got it in just under the wire on Friday night. <laughs> And so there's there's no not going to be any rest for the Georgia weary for a while.
2: Understood. And I and I have a lot of questions about that lawsuit that I want to get to. But uh, we've had you on a bunch of times over the past months now to discuss the and various nightmares. Well, thank you for being there to do it. But we haven't had you on since Election Day to discuss how things actually went on Election Day and how things are still going there now with your lawsuit and with several important runoff elections coming up in Georgia from the midterms, including for Secretary of State. Will they once again be using the unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in this runoff?
1: Sadly, Brad, they they are indeed. They're using them despite all of warnings and you know all of the warnings that they have had every every group from the federal court to the uh national academy of science has warned them not to do this
2: i mean there's only like two races on the ballot secretary of state and public service commissioner as i recall how hard would that be to uh not only hand mark a paper ballot but hell you could hand count those uh those ballots in no time flat that's for
1: sure brad and but unfortunately, the secretary of state has taken and, and the local election officials keep taking the position that somehow that's just too hard for Georgians to do, that it would just be too confusing for them to have to pick up a pen and color in the ovals.
2: And now as and I,
1: I think that's rather insulting.
2: Uh, well, yeah, it is. But as I understand it, in order to use these touchscreens again, uh, basically one month after the uh, after the November 6th general election, they're reprogramming the computers, the the touchscreens that were used on Election Day, in violation of their own state law, which says they must not disturb those machines for one month after the election. Is that correct?
1: Um, That is correct, Brad. And and. You know, Jordan Wilkie also wrote about this, the fact that they are absolutely violating their own law. And just within the last few hours, we have had yet another fight with the Secretary of State's office about this. Not only did we need those machines preserved for our core case, the, the election security cases in federal court, but also we certainly need them in this new case that um that challenges the election results for the lieutenant governor's race we have continued to over the last week and then yet again this afternoon said to the secretary of state your rule your own election code says they cannot touch these machines the internal memory for one month if if there is no election contest pending now there is an election contest pending Obviously, they are needed as evidence, mm-hmm. and the Secretary, as of, as of today, is continuing to take the position that overriding the data, uploading, uploading new um, uh, ballot programming for the December 4th runoff, and putting these machines out in unsecured voting
2: places, mm-hmm.
1: somehow does not, does not make the internal memory data at risk. That's just foolish
2: in anyone's mind. And I want to talk know? about. And, I, I want to talk about how that will actually affect the the lieutenant governor's uh, the contest that you filed the um, the lawsuit that you filed. Uh, but before I get to that, yes. let me very quickly ask you um, about this lawsuit. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. It was just filed. I have not yet had a chance to read it. Um, uh this was uh, filed by uh Stacy Abrams uh, her team her new uh group Fair Fight Georgia do did they said they intend to contest the the elections in Georgia in general the way they're run but not their actual uh not her actual uh, election for governor is that how you understand this this uh, lawsuit uh, well? yes that's
1: right and and, um, Brad, I've had about three minutes to skim through it, mm-hmm. and it's a 66-page complaint, so I've certainly not had chance to digest it. But you're right, they are uh, making general allegations about the method of voting, voter registration, mm-hmm. all of the voter suppression, the mechanics of voting even on the uh, DRE machines. They are taking a very broad-brush approach to Georgia's. Very questionable um, voting system, and they are asking a federal court for prospective relief. Um, no doubt, this will be a a very hard fought, very long. It will have a very very long lead time on it. I think um, uh, for this case, they are not you know asking to overturn any of the elections. In fact, it is too late to do that. the The deadlines have now passed. And we filed on the deadline for the for the lieutenant governor's race. And so there are no more uh, races that can be hmm. contested.
2: Okay, so you guys did that on the last day for the lieutenant governor's race. And one that's correct. One Uh more uh, question before I get to that. Your group, Coalition for Good Governance and other voting rights uh, groups, Common Cause, ACLU and so forth, filed a number of lawsuits. Uh, before the election and even during the uh, November 6th contest. But the did the Abrams campaign and the state Democrats in general join you in those suits? For example, your fight uh, to, to get a, a hand-marked paper ballot for every voter in Georgia? Uh, d- or did they otherwise take action to avoid what I now see in the governor's race as a completely illegitimate election?
1: No, subtly they didn't. They focused their resources on get-out-the-vote work. And their idea was that if they could get out the vote, that somehow they could mitigate for all of these fundamental process problems. And I think that that, that theory was shown to be far too optimistic um, because there were too many voters that got caught in a um, a system of not having their votes counted. And then we have no idea how many had machine their machine votes flipped not counted counted backwards mm-hmm. you know it's
3: it's it,
1: it's unknown but now i think people realize that Brad, all of these warnings that you've been giving how many years now like 16 18 years
2: yeah
1: yep. um and the and the, the specific warnings that we gave in our lawsuits and before th- those those warnings now were became quite tangible. They are no longer no one can any longer think of them as theoretical. But sadly, um, the the Democratic Party and the Abrams campaign did not join us in the prophylactic measures that could have been taken to avoid this. What we had hoped yeah. is that the Abrams campaign and the Democratic Party would go to each county, each of the one fifty nine counties in Georgia they all have local election boards that are bipartisan with democrats and republicans appointed appointed by their parties each of them could have chosen paper ballots 159 counties chose on their bipartisan local county boards not to
2: when you say that democrats uh, had hoped to mitigate any problems uh, with get out the vote is is this the idea that i've heard from Many Democrats over the years is that, oh, we just have to turn out in such huge numbers that they could not possibly uh, steal the election, that voter suppression won't end up costing us the race. Uh, is Is that the notion that uh, you saw the Democrats working on there, and does this that election to be. prove that doesn't work? <laughs> I mean Well,
1: of course it's just uh, one woman's opinion, but um, that appeared to be the approach they took. Um, they really did one hundred percent offense, very little defense. Mm. um and the the work that we saw taking place in terms of poll watchers, and that sort of work was mm-hmm. was pretty um, uh, was pretty traditional, I will call it, as opposed to really uh, really challenging some of the many wrong things that were happening throughout early voting and in the polling place, and then documenting. Um, as we would like to have seen documented, the the errors, so that they could have been challenged mm. um, more easily. I, I think that almost every person on the ballot, um, in, in all the ballot questions, certainly had a basis for a challenge had enough been documented. Um, you know, mm. Lieutenant Governor, we have a little different situation. We'll come back and talk to that. But I think that Democrats hopefully will will take a lesson from this, that you cannot overcome um, these fundamental um, uh, efforts, Hmm. whether it's hacking of a machine, manipulation of a machine, or or even unintentional programming errors. You can't bet on overcoming that
2: with, with turnout. And and that's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of election integrity advocates are born after they have lost an election, uh, which is why we try to uh, raise these issues before it becomes an issue. Uh, and to that end, let's move to your newest lawsuit in Georgia, where Jordan Wilkie at Who, What, Why reports your suit will attempt to prove that there were enough irregularities in lieutenant governor's race between Democrat Sarah Riggs-Amico and Republican Jeff Duncan to, as the complaint charges, to place doubt in the results. Uh, As of now, Duncan, the Republican, was certified the winner with uh, 51.63% of the vote to Riggs-Amico's 4837 That's a fairly sizable, almost three-and-a-half-point margin. So why should those results be in doubt, Marilyn Marks, according to your lawsuit?
1: Well... When you begin to read the complaints that mm-hmm. voters turned in the voters are calling us about there were just innumerable reports of voters who didn't have this race show up on their electronic ballot.
2: didn't show up um, at all was, on the race when they...
1: well uh, apparently they didn't it didn't show up until some people in fact did find it on their review screen. There's summary screen that, you know, how as you scroll through and you do your votes and just before you hit the cast my ballot button, mm-hmm. you know, it gives you a review. Mm-hmm. Well, for many voters, apparently that's the first time they saw um, the lieutenant governor race. And then apparently one of two things happened for those for this particular subset of folks. One of two things happened. Either they were able to then go back and uh, make a selection in the lieutenant governor race. Or, in many cases, apparently, when they got to the review screen, staring at it, trying to get ready to, to cast a vote, or excuse me, to, to, to make a correction, mm-hmm. without even touching the screen, it automatically casts a vote in this, and the message comes up, thank you for voting, your vote was cast we've seen many, many complaints from voters on the fact that they never had the chance, once they realized that they had not been able to vote in the lieutenant governor's race, and even before they started to take take action, mm-hmm. to put their hand over the mach- machine to do it, that it was too late. The ballot was
2: cast. And I gotta say and, that w- we don't know, of course, uh, because you know we don't have a videotape of this happening. It happens so quickly, and and the, ca- the vote is already cast, and at that point there's nothing that can be done about it. And so you could have people saying, well, uh, I meant to vote in that race, but I didn't uh, because I couldn't, etc. But we actually have evidence that I believe you filed with your lawsuit here showing some kind of remarkable data uh, in what you describe as the residual vote, and that is a, a, a residual vote is a vote where uh, a ballot where there is no vote uh, f- at all for the candidate, or there is an overvote. In other words, they voted for too many uh, people for that candidate. In any event, the um, the computers show no vote in that race. Correct? That's a residual vote. That's correct. All right. Right. The charts filed with your lawsuit for the residual votes in the lieutenant governor's race in other words where no uh, vote was uh, was recorded is way way higher than any of the other statewide ri- statewide races it's almost twice that of all of the uh, uh, these races that are farther down on the ballot like secretary of state right. insurance commissioner right. school superintendent the and it,
1: agriculture commissioner yeah. not things that are yeah, this is the lieutenant governor's race is the second-highest office in the state. And some people don't understand, uh, the ge- residents of Georgia do, but maybe outside of Georgia, the, re- the lieutenant governor is also the president of the Senate and mm-hmm. basically controls all of the legislation uh, coming, through cap- coming through the Capitol. So it is a very powerful position. You know, how could we believe that there is more interest in the commissioner of insurance, commissioner of agriculture, public service commission race than the lieutenant governor race.
2: Yeah, it's not even close. And then just in case people think, oh, okay, well, maybe people are interested in the agriculture uh, commissioner in Georgia, but not so much the lieutenant governor, um, no, that's not the case if we compare year over year, comparing the uh, 2018 election with the 2014 election. The residual uh, rates for all of those races were pretty much all in line for governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, ag commissioner and so forth um, back in 2014. But in 2018, again, boom, lieutenant governor threw the roof with residual votes. What could possibly happen? Explain this (laughs) at this point, Marilyn.
1: Well, when people give me, and they've given me some pretty silly explanations, which I won't even bore you with, um, but when you say, but now wait a minute, there was no meaningful drop-off at all if we just look at paper ballots. You know, I don't know if you had a chance to see that in the the Mm -hmm. filing, Brad, but if you look at the mail-in ballots and the provisional ballots, there was virtually no drop-off.
2: So the only so drop-off, the, off the only res- on
1: the machines,
2: uh-huh, the, on the touchscreen, only the residual rate uh, of no vote at all for lieutenant governor that only happened on the touchscreens, not on the paper ballots. And there were a lot of paper ballots, a lot of uh, mail-in because uh, Stacey Abrams had been pushing for uh, vote by mail for a lot of people. The rate is all the same for on, on uh, the paper it's ballots.
1: very close. It yeah. very close. It was much more traditional. Yes, yeah, some people go and only vote the top race, but it was very, very close to nothing in terms of the um uh the the level of voting for lieutenant governor when you look at the paper ballots. so what this tells us is that the undervote is related only to the machines now, please explain that
2: I was hoping you could you got the lawsuit i can't <laughs> i mean I, 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 I... If, if we're if we're bring, if we're focusing only on uh, this problem only happening on the machines and it's clearly a problem when you look at this data uh, and happening only on the machines, that means it is either, uh, uh, you know, a nefarious a hack or something of some sort or misprogramming a less nefarious misprogramming. It's got to be one or the other, doesn't it? And what, if so, it, what does that? What does your lawsuit ask uh, as the remedy here? Well, certainly the,
1: the remedy is to rerun the election on a verifiable, evidence-based um, process. Um, the we just cannot have people have an election where you just have to guess at what the uh, on various theories as to uh, what the result was. Um, so yes, it could be it could be a programming error, it could be a hack. Um, but what we do know is all machines did not behave the same. We have people prepared, willing to give us affidavits that say, as far as I could tell, my machine showed no problem. You know, I she was on the first page of my ballot. Mm-hmm. I had no issue on uh, my electronic ballot. You know, I had no issue. Voted all the way through. It's fine. Now we have many other people who did not have that. So there were clearly problems in some machines and not others, and but yet they were all programmed. Every single machine is identical, and every machine was programmed by the Secretary of State's office. So what could be causing this glitch? We don't know right now, Brad, and of course that's why we are, Seeking the preservation of this electronic evidence, and that is why we will be asking for discovery, and we may be going into the court as early as tomorrow with a motion to try to preserve this equipment because um, the the officials are recklessly. Um, a- avoiding preserving the equipment.
2: And that's what uh, it, it takes us. I've just got a minute or two left here, Marilyn Marks, but uh, that takes us back to the earlier point. Has the evidence in question here, these machines, uh, has the evidence now been destroyed because the machines have been reprogrammed for the runoff coming up in those other races on uh, on Tuesday?
1: So, so, Brad, we're hoping that there are still machines that have not been reprogrammed um, because they this particular runoff is going to see such a low turnout and there are fewer um uh, early voting places mm-hmm. for example there will be fewer machines used in the precincts and as a result we we believe that um there will be some machines that will not be scheduled for reprogramming and we're trying to catch them before there's any chance that they are put through reprogramming.
2: And will you be allowed to have uh, experts examine those machines? Because for years they don't let anybody uh, examine them. So will that be allowed in this suit for a forensic uh, study?
1: Well, it will be up to the judge, but I can't imagine how a judge is going to say, no, you've presented all of this evidence that there was some kind of problem. Machines were behaving differently. From polling place A to polling place B, I'm not going to let you figure out why. It's hard to imagine that the judge is going to do that, given the level of evidence we have now. And, yep. Brad, I think the thing that is different now than what we've had in the past, you know, we've worked on this, um, this uh, unverifiable voting in the courts now for a year and a half.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now we have court rulings that say this is not a reasonable method of voting. These machines are not reliable. We've got, you know, court opinions that say this is highly questionable. Therefore, I think that, that a judge in an election case can now more easily look to court opinions, mm-hmm. court rulings that, that that give this judge the basis of of saying yeah there is plenty of reason yep. that a hard look needs to be taken
2: yeah your judge so i'm
1: hopeful that our past work will will be of a real investment it
2: pays benefits now. Yep, you're right your judge should certainly be sympathetic to uh, these concerns given that you warned about all of these concerns in advance and now they seem to have potentially come to pass in the lieutenant governor's race. Marilyn, before I let you go very quickly, is Sarah Riggs uh, Amico the uh, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor uh, I, she is not join uh, joining your suit as a plaintiff, is she? And if not, why not?
1: Well, no, she is is not joining. Uh, We are doing this, Brad, on a nonpartisan, as we do all our work, as you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we are doing this on a nonpartisan basis on behalf of voters. We are not doing this on the part of the Democratic Party or of Sarah Miko. In fact, I only met Sarah for the first time and ever so briefly last week. I've never had any contact with her before. Um, and this is something we decided we wanted to do because of the machines, the data, the problems that we showed. Um, not because of a political reason. As you know, I'm a Republican. Yeah. And, uh, one of my lawyers on this is a Republican and one of our plaintiffs is, um, is a Libertarian. So we're, we're coming at this from a standpoint of having a election integrity, uh, or election, um, it, Process in Georgia that has integrity, not for any partisan reasons.
2: Marilyn Marks, Executive Director of the Coalition for Good Governance. You can find them at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. You can and should follow Marilyn on the Twitters at Marilyn R. One. That's the number one. Marilyn R. Marks One. Uh, and I hope you will consider supporting the work that the uh, coalition does uh, because. There is really nobody out there fighting these fights, um, certainly in advance of, uh, you know, when an election goes south. But now, even after uh, an election, to try to figure out what the hell happened. Uh, Marilyn Marks, thank you for your efforts and stay thank in touch. Thank you, Brad. For Look forward to hearing how well, we'll this it. Thank uh, you. lawsuit goes. Thank you. We'll
0: keep you posted. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was Brad's conversation with Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance back in November. Coming up next, Brad's interview with Michael Hiltzik of the L.A. Times from August. I'm producer Desi Doyen, and you're listening to the best of the Bradcast. You're listening to the best of the broadcast. Yeah. All right,
2: welcome back to the
0: Bradcast.
2: Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As record wildfires continue to rage now up and down the great state of California, the Trump administration is taking the opportunity... Not to help the thousands of firefighters in the state battle the record blazes, including one that is now the largest in state history. Instead, they seem to have decided not to let a good catastrophe go to waste, especially when it's in their mortal enemy state of California, I guess, when they can otherwise use these disasters as an excuse to change largely unrelated policies that right wingers have long wanted to change even if they have nothing at all to do with the immediate disaster of record wildfires in a record hot summer fueled by climate change's global warming, which the administration continues, as you know, to regard as a myth and a hoax anyway. Now, I don't usually like to focus on Donald Trump's Uh, ridiculous statements and rallies and Twitter feed. But here I need to, for a moment, focus on uh, some of his tweets since his curious and wildly ignorant tweets about the California wildfires over the past few days appear to signal a new effort by the administration to change a number of major federal policies that in truth have nothing to do with fighting wildfires or why they are now so uh, difficult to fight in the first place here in the Golden State. Many are focusing on the silliness of his tweets, but overlooking why he appears to be saying what he is saying, and that seems a mistake to me. But let's start with the tweet itself. As Emily Atkin notes at the uh, New Republic several days ago, last year was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire season in California's history, But she says that could soon change as the state now enters the peak month of fire season. Wildfires have already burned more than two hundred and ninety thousand acres and killed eight people this time last year in what had been the most deadly and destructive uh, season in state history. Only about two hundred and twenty thousand acres had burned by this time and no one had died. The 2017 season would eventually claim 44 lives. Now, since then, I should note, officials have pegged the number of burnt acreage to as much as 400,000 acres this year, with about 1,100 homes destroyed to date. Why are these wildfires so bad and why do they seem to be getting worse over time? Atkin asks. Well, President Donald Trump offered his opinion in a Sunday night tweet writing that, quote, bad environmental laws have been diverting water away from firefighting efforts into the Pacific Ocean. He also wrote that the state, quote, must tree clear to stop fire spreading. Presented with Trump's tweet, the uh, state firefighting agency Atkin notes, notes said that it had no idea what he was talking about. Dan Berlant, assistant deputy director at CAL FIRE, told the New York Times We have plenty of water to fight these wildfires, but let's be clear, it's our changing climate that is leading to more severe and destructive fires. Longtime Los Angeles Times columnist Michael Hiltzik has been similarly trying over the past week to make sense of Trump's tweets and what they really mean for the ongoing disaster here in California, and future changes to long-standing federal laws and environmental regulations. Michael Hiltzik is the Times-Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and business columnist, where he has served as a financial and political writer, an investigative reporter, a technology writer, an editor, and a foreign correspondent in Africa and Russia. He's also the author of several books, including Big Science... Ernest Lawrence and the invention that launched the military-industrial complex and the New York Times bestseller Colossus, Hoover Dam and the Making of the American Century. Michael Hiltzik, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, it's good to be on with you. Uh, You reported last week, uh, Michael, that uh, on, on at least one of the big reasons that likely explains Trump's bizarre tweets about California's wildfires, Uh, About, quote, where he said, bad environmental laws which aren't allowing massive amount of readily available water to be properly utilized. And then his odd reference to diverting water into the oceans. You know, as rivers do all by themselves. But before we get to what you have found that might explain the tweet in uh, in reality, as far as policy goes, you describe the tweet itself as, quote, some sort of award that it deserves some sort of award for most glaring misstatements about climate change and water policy in the smallest number of words ever so let me allow you uh michael to defend that charge why is it as you and others charge that uh his tweet is such an ignorant misstatement of the problem at hand
3: well as you pointed out uh, uh you know just a moment or two ago um trump seemed to be arguing that uh that environmental laws bad or good or whatever we're diverting water that was needed to fight these fires and as cal fire has told uh, told me and and many others there's just simply no truth to that um, there is more than enough water uh on site to fight these fires the fires in northern california surround huge reservoirs uh cal fire and firefighters are drawing from those reservoirs all the time there's no crisis there's no shortage and in any case water is is just one of the many devices or, or many instruments that firefighters use to fight wildfires and it's by no means the most important uh so so there's that bad environmental laws trump wasn't very clear as to which laws he was talking about but as i pointed out the fact is that the environmental laws uh that have contributed or to uh to the fire situation are laws that he has abrogated uh by uh by withdrawing the united states from climate change conferences and uh, and undermining greenhouse gas regulations and
0: and and what have
3: you and that all contributes to the hot and dry conditions and the drought conditions that have contributed to these wildfires over time so Diverted to the Pacific Ocean, as you pointed out, water goes to the Pacific Ocean. That's where the waters in our rivers go. The diversions are the diversion of water for growers in the Central Valley of California who uh, live in one of the very few Republican zones in the state and, uh, and are uh, basically supported by the very few Republican office holders we have in Congress.
2: And uh, for for people not in California uh, who may not understand, Republicans have long argued that uh, the way California is using water is actually the reason for the years-long drought that we have been uh, fighting out here, facing out here, not the actual you know, lack of things like rain and snowfall during these years. These are actually drought deniers, Michael, who, who think we don't have a drought here at all. And if I recall during the, I, I want to say it was during the 2016 election, didn't Donald Trump also say something along those lines that we have plenty of water out here in California, we're just misusing it?
3: Yes, uh Trump, during the campaign, sort of emerged as the drought denier in chief, and that was after he came up to the Central Valley and met with a lot of those Republican congressmen and uh and the growers in the Central Valley who don't get as much water as they want uh, for legal reasons more than anything else, and that's because they have very junior water rights in this very complex system we have in the state, and they have to wait until other users get their water before they do, and they also have to wait under federal law for environmental uses uses to be served. And that means water has to be kept flowing through a lot of our rivers so that fish and fishermen and fisheries are supported, and we don't let those, those species go extinct. And when I say going extinct, it's not only fish that are at risk of going extinct, but as I've reported, there are salmon fishermen on the coast who, whose livelihoods are at risk of going extinct because the salmon are being stressed by uh, uh, by federal policies that don't allow enough water to. to to flow down the rivers
2: they use. Now, is there anything to the argument that uh, Republicans have been putting forward and complaining about for years that, in fact, the lack of water in the, uh, uh, the, the right-leaning Central Valley here in California uh, is due to bad policies, whether it's to protect endangered species uh, or the billion-dollar uh, California salmon industry? Are, it, are there changes that could be made uh, that are legitimate, as opposed to just the, the the whining and the drought denial we've seen for so many years from some of these folks?
3: Well, so bad policy is in the eye of the, of the beholders. Uh, the, the growers who are complaining, they think it's bad policy because they don't get as much water as they want. And, and look, in this, in this state, water in many parts of the state is a very scarce resource. And the only way to deal with it is to have a balanced, System that serves all of the stakeholders as well as we can, and that means that the, that, that the growers they're, they're one category of stakeholders, but fish and fishermen and environmental needs that's another group of stakeholders, and urban users like myself uh, who who need, who get water imported from central and northern California so that we have water to drink uh, and 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 wash our clothes in uh... we're another group of stakeholders and there are a lot of state agencies and experts who who are trying to work out a balanced policy so that everybody gets uh... the growers think that any water that goes to users who are not themselves is is bad policy and they blame it all on leftist environmentalists and that's a quote from some of their supporters in congress (laughs) and it's simply wrong um that first of all it's not true second of all all of all of the allocations of water that are being done are done in accordance with state and even more so federal law which is very clear about where the priorities are and how this water needs to be apportioned within those limits uh, state agencies and judges have worked out uh... deals and mandates but uh you know everybody is in this together there's not uh, in many ways there's not enough water to go around although there could be if we did more conservation and the growers did wiser uh, conservation but the, the growers are not number 1 and they don't come first and there's 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 nothing about bad environmental laws there's nothing about diversion that really tells us why they don't get as much What do they want? It's really water rights, and it's competing needs that are legitimate needs. Uh,
2: The uh, Endangered Species Act, uh, you would go on to uh, report in a subsequent column over this past week, uh, seems to be at uh, at the the heart, as much as we can make sense of Donald Trump's tweet, uh, seems to be at the heart of what he might be trying to do here, and I want to talk about that in a moment, but there's also this notion of federal versus state control, period. Uh, I cited Emily Atkin at the top of this segment here. She writes that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke traveled to two reservoirs in the northern uh, San Joaquin Valley uh, recently where he told reporters that his agency may intervene. Uh, There is, quote, there is a federal interest, the federal interest as the water master, he said he was joined by Republican congressman uh, from uh, Central California, Jeff Denham, who called the state's water conservation proposal a, quote, disastrous plan to flush water from valleys to the ocean, flush waters from valleys uh, to the ocean foreshadowing the language that Trump would eventually use about diverting water. Um, there has uh, seems to be a battle royale brewing, if not already underway, between federal and state control of a lot of these issues, whether it's the mileage and emissions standards or the use of water here. Um. Do, do I I find it ironic given that you know Republicans are always talking about states' rights and here the feds they want to use the feds to over uh, to Bigfoot the uh, the state. Um, but is this about the feds being able to determine, rather than the state, how the state will use its own water? Well,
3: I think this federal this administration would like to, but this is not really about state rights in the abstract. You know, state rights, as we hear about it, is sort of a constitutional uh, mm-hmm. principle. This is about law and federal law, and Zinke is simply wrong. The fact of the matter is that that all the federal laws that apply to the allocation of water in California, uh, including water uh, from projects that the federal government funded uh, the law says that that water has to be allocated in accordance with state law it's very explicit about that so for zinke to suggest that he can preempt state law he is simply wrong and if he's if he has any doubt about that that we would say he needs to go back to to a Supreme Court ruling in the 1970s that was written by William Rehnquist, <laughs> who nobody would mistake for a liberal Democrat, uh, which said, and it, it, "Well, well, not back, not, not, back the,
2: not back then, Michael. They they might call him a liberal Democrat now, but go, I take your point. Go well, ahead.
3: right. Well, he certainly wasn't then. Right. Uh, and this was before he was even Chief Justice, and, and mm. in a case entitled California v. United States, Rehnquist." made it very clear that the state's rules are what apply and the federal government doesn't have the authority to countermand them Um so uh... but that hasn't stopped zinke and trump from saying that they can and should and they've written letters basically threatening the state of california with a lawsuit mm-hmm. if it if it if the if the state exercises it's clear legal authority so that's developing i think uh you know it's it's perfectly possible that this administration will try to to launch that fight but it doesn't have the law behind it and it's most likely going to lose.
2: So that's on the uh, Interior Department side with uh, Ryan Zinke, and then there's this seems to be this other element that you also uh, report on this week at the Los Angeles Times, the Endangered Species Act. You had argued several days ago that an order issued Wednesday by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross To the National Marine Fisheries Service and its parent agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And by the way, I had no idea that NOAA was actually part of the Commerce Department here. Uh, but in any event, this uh, this directive uh, directs the agencies to facilitate access to the water needed to fight the ongoing wildfires affecting the state of California. Well, that's good. It then gives away the game. You you argue by making specific reference to the Federal Endangered Species Act, quote, consistent with the emergency consultation provisions under the ESA. Federal agencies may use any water as necessary to protect life and property in the affected areas. So what does that order tell you, uh, Mr. Hiltzik, about what they're doing uh, here? I
3: I think we can unpack that a bit. First of all, um, the Trump administration has had the knives out for the Endangered Species Act for for more than a year. And the reason uh, that it's doing that in California is because... It's, it's, uh, court rulings under the Endangered Species Act that, that, that made sure that water did flow down the rivers and didn't go first to the growers. So the growers have been on the warpath saying, oh, you know, we're not getting water and we're, you know, we're drying up because of these biological opinions that say the fish need the water. Uh, these are biological opinions that were issued in accordance with the Federal Endangered Species Act. So, so, so Trump has been out for the ESA uh, from the get-go. Now, what Ross did uh, the other day was he invoked the ESA to say we're going to abrogate the ESA. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, declare an emergency here if we can, so that we don't have to serve the rivers and we don't have to send the water down the rivers for the endangered species that is the fish we're going to use it to protect as he put it protect life and property in the affected areas and once again what he was referring to is the fire zone and he was suggesting that the water that was going down the rivers was needed to fight the fires. And as we we've already said that's just Wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I would go further. I'd say that's a lie because uh, Ross and Trump have been told over and over again over the last week or weeks that the water is not needed to fight the fire. So essentially, they're trying to bootstrap this fire crisis that we have to enable them to try to undermine the Endangered Species Act. It's transparent, it's not going to go, it's certainly not going to happen without litigation and by the time that litigation goes through the court we're we're going to be out of the twenty eighteen fire season and well into the twenty nineteen season maybe even the twenty twenty season so so the real subtext here is once again an effort to serve the growers and these are big agribusinesses by the way they're Mm -hmm. not mom-and-pop farmers they're huge almond orchards and pistachio orchards that have been planted by very wealthy agribusiness, corporate corporate growers Mm -hmm. on the assumption that they would have a steady stream of water. And when they don't get the water they need, their trees die. And that's why they are desperate. They made a mistake. They planted crops that aren't really suitable for the water situation in California. And now they're moving heaven and earth and exerting all sorts of political influence to get water that they actually don't have a right to. M-
2: Michael Hiltzik, why does the uh, farming industry in uh, in California get so much more love than the uh, than the fishing and the billion-dollar fishing industry, the salmon industry and so forth? Uh, that's a huge industry as well. Is there just that much of a disparity between... Uh, the amount of uh, money that comes into farmers versus uh, fishermen, or is it the amount of money that they give to these politicians? What what explains that disparity?
3: Well, I, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, yes, salmon is a billion-dollar industry. That is, when there are salmon to catch and when the salmon season is allowed to be five months long, as it is you know, in a healthy period of time, mm-hmm. as opposed to six weeks long, which is what it's like. This year, but a billion-dollar industry—that—that that sounds big, but it's small compared to the agriculture industry in California, which is many, many times larger. Another aspect of this is that the the growing uh, the, the growers are big businesses; they're big corporations. They're you know they're they're Dole, they're Del Monte-sized uh, mm. businesses. The, the, the fishing, uh, the fishing industry is made up of a lot of small players, and they simply don't have the political clout that big agribusiness does. And, and, and as a result, I think most people in California and maybe outside the state think of California as essentially a, a, a breadbasket, where uh, you know all of these fruits and vegetables, all the produce that you get across the country, that's California. They don't really. They're not really aware of these other livelihoods that depend on water in the state. You know, it seems sort of tangential to think of, well, you know, somebody who goes out and fishes for salmon in the ocean actually depends on the salmon getting a healthy supply of water inland so that they can spawn and mm-hmm. then they go out to the ocean where they can be caught. So I think people don't really grasp, they don't really grasp what's going on here and I've tried through my own reporting to uh, to bring that to people's attention mm-hmm. but it but it's hard because the growers are big they have a lot of money for advertising they have a lot of money for political lobbying they have a lot of money for political contributions and they spend that money
2: yeah i think you pointed out uh... in uh, one of your columns this week that the salmon salmon industry saw ninety five ninety five percent of juveniles wiped out Back in uh, was it 2014 and 2015 because uh, yeah. the worst of the drought, we had to release the water from uh, Shasta Lake, and it was too well, warm. Well, I mean that,
3: that that was during the drought, but yeah. the, but but the water was released from Shasta Lake, which is our largest reservoir, to serve the growers. Um, and as a result of that, the water in Shasta Lake that was then then passed into the rivers was was hot or relatively hot, and it boiled the small fry and destroyed the salmon catch mm. um, and and that, once again it's not, it wasn 't the drought so much; it was this determination to make water releases to serve the growers that that really just fried the fry, so to speak mm. and uh, and created this this huge crisis and yes ninety uh, the figure that we have is ninety seven percent uh, of the uh, salmon smolts in the Sacramento River, which is a key supplier uh, of, of salmon to the ocean, uh, were destroyed uh, in those two years.
2: Uh, the uh, David Bernhardt, the Deputy Secretary of the Interior, I don't know if you saw this, he uh, published an op-ed in Washington Post today talking about we need to update the Endangered Species Act on, quote, market-based solutions. And collecting data about the economic impacts of uh, protecting these species, uh, Michael. Last uh, thought here: You seem to suggest, in in these cases, when it comes to the, to the uh, feds versus the state on water policy, and when it comes to the Endangered Species Act, that the law is on, let's say, the good guys' side here. Uh, should we worry? It sounds like the law is on the good guys' side, uh, and hopefully, this is just you know years of court battles. But is there real reason to be concerned about what the, the the Trump administration is doing here?
3: Well, let me start by giving you a little bit of background about David Bernhardt, who's uh, you know one of the, the number two or number three man mm-hmm. at Interior and who wrote that op-ed. David Bernhardt, before he joined the federal government, was a lobbyist for the Westlands Water District, which is the largest private water district that we're talking about. It's a junior; it has junior water rights. It's where a lot of these almond and pistachio trees are planted. It's got a real Westlands Westland has a real interest in changing the law so it gets more water and Here's Bernhardt, who used to be their lobbyist and their lawyer so that should tell you right there what's really going on here. The fact is that the Endangered Species Act is not not a component of uh, of a market economy it's it's there. Because if the, market, if, if the free market is left to its own devices, these species will die. And the whole point of having an Endangered Species Act is to make sure that they survive despite all of these economic interests that are lined up to kill them off. And, uh, you know, basically David Bernhardt is talking the book of the people who used to employ him when he was in private practice and 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 i don't think his assertions about the need to have a cost benefit calculation to protect species endangered species really has any credibility whatsoever
2: Uh, Just more regulatory capture, I'm afraid, of our federal agencies. Uh, At the end of Michael Hiltzik's uh, L.A. Times column this week, headlined Trump's minions are using California wildfires as excuse to attack endangered species protections. He writes, anyone concerned with trying to fashion rational water policy in the face of politically self-interested interference out of Washington should take heed. The Trump administration just signaled that it will stop at nothing, no matter how illogical. Michael Hiltzik, I uh, hope people do take heed uh, and follow your important work on this over at latimes.com. You can also follow Michael on the Twitters at Hiltzik M. Michael Hiltzik, greatly appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. Thanks. It's happy. To, I'm happy to be there with you. Thank you, sir.
0: Thanks to Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, Michael Hiltzik of the Los Angeles Times, and to you for joining us for today's Best of the Bradcast and spending part of your day with us. You can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyan good luck world